0: Welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So today I realized it's been like probably two months since I've reached out to my sponsor. I just hadn't really thought about it. We were meeting pretty regularly on Thursdays, and then I think a couple Thursdays went by during the holidays that that we we had to miss, or we were going to plan to meet after Christmas, or I honestly just don't really remember what was going to come next. I just haven't had the need to check in, and this is something that just kind of regularly happens with me, where if there isn't like some kind of regular interaction back and forth. I it, it just is removed from my brain. My My memory is not linear. My thinking doesn't work that way. And I can go months without thinking about talking to somebody or reaching out to somebody. So I, you know, it's part of that. The other part is like just realizing that I haven't really been utilizing AA as a, as a resource. Not much of my life has changed from having done that. I guess I'm a little irritable, but I don't know if that's due to that or just due to me not regularly working some of the things that I've been trying to work on? I mean, I've, you know, I've gotten a little short and this was kind of older behavior, I suppose. The shortness and the impatience is is just something I've always kind of had to struggle with. You know, if people aren't quick, you know, if they're not quick enough, if they're not keeping up enough, um, then my answers get shorter. I get impatient but even then, I've been checking myself and and kind of dialing it back. Like I can ha- I can see it happening in real time and kind of pull it back. And you know this this is sort of something I'll probably always struggle with because I just at times feel like people aren't keeping up. Just is how how my brain processes some things, not other things. You know, if I'm falling behind, I get frustrated because then I feel like I'm stupid. So you know, it's unreasonable for me to expect that people keep up with me. But you know, that's just how how that works. the The other thing. I was at a work function. I've only been at the job for a couple weeks. The job's great. It's fantastic. Exactly the kind of job I should be working. I'm still finding myself extremely distracted. I do have some supplements that might be helping or helpful for that i've read some some strong reviews on it one of them is supposed to help me sleep a bit because i do struggle with getting to sleep i struggle still with like finding a routine where i get to sleep at a a reasonable time so i wake up at a reasonable time so i'm constantly like burning the candle at both ends and half the time i'm not really even doing anything of value i just don't want to go to sleep like a fucking toddler uh so this medication it's not medication it's it's a supplement it combines a few things with melanin melatonin excuse me and it's supposed to help like give me a vitalized like eight hours of sleep, like a, a very deeper sleep. Uh, the the melatonin is okay. I just wake up a little groggy and kind of foggy. And overall, just have had kind of a brain fog ever since I had COVID. Worse worse than I've really ever had. Uh, some of it I think is coming from the melatonin. Some of it I think is coming from just like my addiction to energy drinks. Anyways, and then another supplement is supposed to help just kind of keep me alert and focused, we'll see how that works. It is an alternative to some ADHD medications. And if that's the case, and hopefully it'll help with with some of that stuff that I've been kind of struggling with. Because yeah, at work, I'm I'm all over the place. I can't just focus on my task. Uh, I have 14 or 15 things going on at once. And I was hoping the new job would be different because I'd have to learn that new job. But I've been doing training and I can't focus on the training uh, because it's just videos and reading and for some reason, I can't learn that way right now. I cannot focus on stuff like that right now. I can't read it. I could not possibly read a book right now. I, I can barely watch a movie that I'm interested in. Uh, that part of my attention span is just gone. Now, if I'm sitting with someone and I'm, I'm enjoying their company and watch something, I can watch the whole thing because I'm spending time with them. And that seems to be different. It still is like that. But if it's for myself, I have to be engaged somehow. So dialing back to what the, all that kind of led off of the work function. So the work function was, uh, it was at uh, this sort of uh, gathering center place down downtown. It's like a um, fun center. One one side is usually open for just everybody. The other side is open for re- reservations. And then both sides are open if there aren't any reservations. So we rented out the one side our company did. And it was a lot of fun. Like they had bowling, karaoke rooms. They had a lot of cool stuff going on there. And... I'm not saying that I usually or used to really enjoy these big social settings, but I'm really finding it harder for me to enjoy my space in those. I've reverted back to just feeling kind of overly shy and sort of like withdrawn from that kind of an experience. I didn't care that it was a bar. Actually, the lady made me this cool mocktail that was pretty fun. I thought it was pretty cool when I told her that I was looking for something non-alcoholic and instead of just offering me a soda, she's like, well, do you like blueberries? And I said, yes. And she made me like an actual mocktail. I honestly thought that was kind of cool. It looked like I had a drink. Nobody gave a shit regardless, but it did, you know, kind of make me feel a little bit more like I was fitting in. That's typically why I end up going for like ginger beers or something like that. So I'm at least holding something and kind of like have that feel that I'm participating without the participating. Still no interest in drinking. So anyways, I'm I'm there. I'm enjoying myself for the most part. I'm kind of bored. I'm with friends, but I'm like hovering with my friends. I'm not really working to try to get to know anybody. But there was this this girl there that's incredibly attractive, very, 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 very attractive. At least the kind of attractive I like, or have been drawn to, but always felt too, I guess, intimidated by. I don't know. I was younger. Me was definitely that kind of person that put women on pedestals in a weird way. Um, if they were pretty, then somehow they were untouchable or unobtainable or whatever. But anyway, she was very attractive. She happened to work in the same department as my friend. My friend went over, introduced me to the people that were there. They're all nerds. They're all computer geeks, and they're all like IT help desk like me. Um, I'm in a phone's version of that. Same same kind of idea. And so we're all chatting. I'm chatting with her. I'm finding that very easy to do, and enjoying myself. She's she's actually engaging in the conversation with people. She's not like she wasn't like vapid or or boring or. She seemed very at ease with, with us geeks. And it was, um, it was kind of refreshing to just hang out with somebody and to be able to just talk to somebody that previously in an old life, I would have been too intimidated to talk to. And I didn't feel any of that. Like I just was, you know, conversing with her. I obviously found her attractive, but I'm not trying to date right now, or at least that's kind of like where my brain's at. And there was this guy that was like super into her. I could tell and was like kind of trying to isolate her into only having a conversation with him. Um, Interrupted me a few times to try to like steal her attention back. And I found myself one, I found myself feeling like, you know, I could probably still talk to this girl. She was obviously interested in talking to me if I were interested in like competing for that attention. And I felt confident enough in the situation that I could have done that, which is a good feeling, like knowing that I can. I can hold my own in a conversation. If I were interested in dating somebody, I could talk to this person who previously I would have been too intimidated to talk to that I could have like, you know, competed for that attention and probably have gotten somewhere with it. I just didn't feel like it, man. I just didn't have the energy for it. Like I am still not wanting to date to the point of even that interaction where this woman's drop dead gorgeous. She's funny, smart, very genuine, very down to earth. All, all the kind of things I, I, I would like a lot in a woman. And I still walked away like, man, I just don't want to compete right now. I don't want to, not not just even the competing, just like, I don't, I started to feel my energy changing and being more towards like, I'm going to put on this false face, not a false face, but like, I'm going to put on this front of converting my energy to that kind of a, a subject, like getting to know this person and and wanting to pursue that. Like, I'm just not. Not really ready for it, but I'm not interested in it. Which is growth for me. Cause I could I usually was just out of a relationship for a couple months. And I would I would instantly be trying to replace that or replicate that, that attention that you get from a relationship. The 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 messages, the the person, you know, that you spend that time with. Um, I don't do well with being single or haven't in the past. And I just found myself thinking, you know, this is just not something I'm really into, I don't want to put my energy that way. I I was liking my energy just being, I do whatever I want, get to know people. That's fine. But like the pursuit was the energy I just didn't have in me or that I didn't want to become, I didn't want to start seeing that motivation happen where like, Oh, I need to, I need to gear this this conversation towards getting to know this person a certain way and phrasing things a certain way. And I just wanted to be myself and just have a good time. And I did. I mean, I had, I had mostly, I had left a little early. I just wanted to like get home and goof off with my, my, uh, my VR thing that I got. But, you know, looking over all that, I know a lot of this podcast, I've talked about relationship stuff because for me, that was always, and how it has always been my biggest struggle relationship stuff, being alone, understanding myself, learning who I am and not using relationships as a tool to kind of like try to work through shit when i'm not actually working through anything getting into them before i'm i'm ready not really being involved in them 100% because for me the the the, the process is the part that i like and so what i what i have done or i'm hoping to start doing is keep building on that like that story learning other people's stories enjoying people's time spending time with my friends doing doing things for people you know and and being there for people and getting that as a, having that be my result, my my reward, just having that presence of being around people be my reward, having that be my having that be my um my fellowship, a good strong group of friends that maybe if I don't I don't see them every day, but I see them at least once a week, I make that effort to see them once a week. You know, I had a friend; who has got a computer. We we play PC gaming stuff. I was recently able to p- upgrade my my computer, some computer comp- components and i gave him my old one because his was a little lesser than. and i uh, also went over and kind of fixed it up a little bit added a couple things you know it took like a, it took a little longer than I expected he's got a very small computer case and you know just help the guy out just do a thing because i wanted to do a thing and it it, it was like kind of my I was able to actually pay it back to him because he'd done the same for me. Like he gave me a, a monitor and a, and a keyboard when I was just first getting into this stuff without questions like here, but to have the stuff, to you help me get started? That's all he, he's just interested in helping me get started. So when he was like in a, in a position where I could give back to that, it was really good of, of the situation that it presented itself. I have friends like that. Now we go back and forth with that kind of stuff. And now I'm able to give this component that he had to someone else who's, who could use it, who has been helpful to me as well. And I know it seems like small things, but access service, you know, is uh, definitely something that helps not only keep me sober, but keep me sane. And that seems to be doing it for me, it really does. I seem to be, for the most part, happy, healthy, and, um, you know, mostly putting along. I, when I switched jobs, I, I cashed out my 401k. I, you know, would not usually do that. In the past, I've done that and blown the money. I was going to roll it over because it was a good amount, not a great amount, but a good amount. But I have, you know, I had had some, some high interest debts that I just never got caught up from, you know, when I was drinking and I was working at Dollar Tree and I was making a bunch of money, which is weird to say about working at Dollar Tree, but I, I had a pretty decent salary there. I was going to use the credit cards to build my credit. And then when I changed jobs, I just wasn't able to ever get ahead of that stuff. And, you know, this stuff's sitting there at 26%. You just never could get ahead of it. I either end up using it for some reason or, you know, I'd have to make minimum payments or whatever was, you know, the case because I'm, I'm not great with budgeting and great with micromanaging my finances, ultimately what it comes down to. But I was able to pay off eight $8,000 worth of debt by cashing all that stuff out. That felt so fucking good. I feel like I can finally have some breathing room on this stuff now when I have the opportunity to start looking at houses, my my credit is, is going to be there, you know? I'm going to be able to really consider those, those options of maybe finding land and putting a little house on it or getting a condo or something where I have my own space and it's my space. You know, I'm a little late in life to be considering and looking for this stuff. I should have already had that stuff handled a long time ago. But the fact that it's actually starting to feel like a real possibility that that could be soon... You know the job is paying more, my uh, my insurance is costing less. I'm now finally caught up on some really heavy loans and debts that were kind of weighing heavy on me. That all feels good. And I don't think I don't think I was prepared for this before. I'm glad it's happening now. I'm glad it's happening after I've made internal personal mental growth uh, and I'm a little bit more mature with it. It still made some good I mean I you know bought a basically a, a video game piece and spent a bunch of money on it but that's my hobby though it's the only hobby that's ever maintained longevity is my video game stuff it's the only thing i've continued to do since i was a kid uh and will probably always continue to do it and i could care less if people like judge me harshly for that i enjoy playing video games i have friends that i play video games with and it's an outlet for me that that keeps me health, you know healthy and sane so I, I put some money towards that i feel okay about that you know overall that's that's really it Like things keep progressing and things keep getting better. And it's harder for me to continue to feel like when that was happening, it was because of AA, given the fact that it's happening and I'm not really participating in the program. And I know I've said that before. And I know that I'm like reading the material and I'm still giving my take on the material because I am relating my journey. I am not relating anybody else's. I'm providing this information because AA helped me so much in the beginning and I could end up needing it again. Just because I'm in a different place now and I'm exploring that doesn't mean that this is it. Doesn't mean that I won't find my way back to the rooms in a different way. My I have a long history of constantly changing gears. So me relaying this is more of, of an effort to hopefully relate to folks who are a little all over the place as well and feel like that that is somehow a detriment to them. Because it has always felt that way to me. And at times it still feels that way. But The fact that I'm still moving forward and still ultimately making good decisions and things are progressively getting better. And I'm finally starting to just ride those waves out, those waves of attention, those waves of hyperfixation in, in a healthy way for the most part. You know, I hope that others who are struggling with that aspect of it and, and can see that, okay, they also go through these waves and these phases of recovery and these phases of life and it happens more rapidly for them than it does other people that you know just that they're you know, there's someone out there like that you know i don't i don't have whole years where i am the same person i am i well at maybe the core i'm the same person every few months i change my fucking wardrobe i change my hair not crazy but i do i change my hair i start wearing hats more i stop wearing hats i start wearing fucking cowboy shit. I, for whatever reason, I'm not a cowboy, but I was doing that anyways. You know, I start dressing a little bit more punk rock, start wearing leather jackets, start wearing fucking hoodies and beanies. Like I just, I am never static. And I, and I, you know, just gravitate towards new, new ideals. And it usually is reflected in like the way I'm uh, outwardly presenting myself. So my recovery is naturally going to do the same thing. My hobbies are going to do the same thing. My, my interest in people are always going to do the same thing. And rather than just keep beating myself up about that, like I have to embrace some aspect of that, just being who I am. And hopefully by talking about this and, and, you know, showing my, my fucking randomness and how my brain works, others who struggle with this can see that, yeah, it might persist during, in recovery, but it's not because you're broken. It's not because you're fucking um, mentally deficient, you you know, your brain just works different. And sometimes you got to learn how to utilize that in a proper way, uh, rather than try to fight against it. I hope, uh, I hope that makes sense. Uh, with that, I'm going to do the, uh, stoic reading. All right. Today's stoic reading for January 18th. See the world like a poet and an artist pass through this brief patch of time in harmony with nature and come to your final resting place gracefully, just as ripened olive might drop praising the earth that nourished it and grateful to the tree that gave it growth. Marcus Aurelius Meditations 4.48.4.2. There are some stunningly beautiful turns of phrase in Marcus's Meditations, a surprising treat considering the intended audience—just himself. In one passage, he praises the charm and allure of nature's process: the stalks of ripe grain bending low, the frowning brow of the lion, the foam dripping from the boar's mouth. We should sh- we should thank private rhetoric teacher Marcus Cornelius Fronto for the imagery in these vivid passages. Fronto, widely considered to be Rome's best orator besides Cicero, was chosen by Marcus's adopted father to teach Marcus to think and write and speak. More than just pretty phrases they gave him and now us a powerful perspective on ordinary or seemingly unbeautiful events. It takes an artist's eye to see that the end of life is not unlike a ripe fruit falling from its tree. It takes a poet to notice the way baking bread splits in places and those cracks, while not intended to be the baker's art, catch our eye and serve to stir our appetite and find a metaphor in them. There is clarity and joy in seeing what others can't see and finding grace and harmony in places others overlook. Isn't that far better than seeing the world as some dark place? You know, I think something that I pride myself on uh, is that I, I tend to see things others might miss, not like like a superpower or something. it probably is having to do with my adhd because i can't just stay focused at times on just one thing i have to, i'm always bouncing all over the place so i i see things that are maybe out of place or i see things that you know in that moment like a whole movie will play as to how it got there um but when i'm talking to people i also see things that maybe might not seem as important or relevant or have weight you know to to some people um you know, this is at the expense of retaining some of this information or remembering certain events or certain things. Like there's a, there's a dynamic there at play. Um, but what I've really found is that I can tell when I am not a hundred percent with my work in this stuff. If, uh, if for some reason I am missing those things, if I'm too busy to just stop and just sort of appreciate um, the small nuances of life around me, because it's all just—it's all bizarre, chaotic mess—and somehow it all comes together. If I can, I try to look at how, if I'm in a conversation with somebody, there is like a huge, just chain of events that probably occurred to have that person there with me. You know, I was talking to somebody—I think I mentioned her earlier. I was talking to uh, this person that was at that work function, and she was from Denmark originally and had moved here a year ago. And it was all by happenstance because she missed her flight. To me, the beauty isn't that she lived in another country her whole life and then ended up here. It was that she missed her flight, and, and 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 that set the course of action that you know put her in a position to be here basically permanently, and happy about it. That to me is the story. That's the part that I'm interested in, because that's all just to me, just a bonkers state, uh, you know, just a, a, a crazy amount of things to happen a certain way to get from here to there to me. that uh, And I know that I'm out of tune or out of whack when I just don't have time for that, or I don't see it, or I don't appreciate it. Even worse is when I don't appreciate it. So if possible, take a second and just try to realize the beauty in the small things, if you can. It could be something as simple as having a chaotic day, but somebody let you in in traffic and they didn't have to. You know, appreciate that moment as small as it might be. Because, yeah, in a huge chaotic mess of traffic with people probably all pissed off or all experiencing different emotions and all the stuff going on, one person taking the opportunity to help you might be just. That moment of beauty that that, that could help reset the, the energy that you might be feeling with everything going on. That's my little bit of advice for that. That's what I try to do. When I am living in that, not living in it like as in every single moment is all about beauty because it's just not how life works. But when I am, I am open to, when I'm receptive of that occurring, when I can see the beauty in these small things, my, my disposition, my, my demeanor seems to like immediately improve. And, uh, and I can tell that that has an effect on other people around me. So I really enjoyed this. I love this idea. I really try my best to recognize those small bits of beauty in all this chaos as much as possible. All right. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. This was another one of those uh, kind of steps where I think for me, I was kind of struggling and mainly it was struggling because I had, I'm you know, I'm three steps ahead almost all the time. And so I couldn't just look at exactly what the words were saying, which was, I just made a list. Most of the list was already done. It was already handled for me. And I already was exploring the people involved on that list via the other steps. All I was doing now was putting to paper just specifically the people that I had harmed, like looking at my fourth step and then looking at the people that I had harmed, not reaching out to anybody, not beating myself up over it, like not doing myself any damage or harm, you know, just, just making the list and being okay and satisfied with just having made that list. If that makes sense. Just just that. Just making the list. My biggest hurdle was not going overboard with this process. My you know, my sponsor was pretty clear is like, don't, you know, list everybody, but don't get stuck like trying to equalize everybody. Don't get stuck on like adjusting the list in some kind of an order. Just list the people. That's it. Just list the people. And you had to keep saying that because I always overthink things and overanalyze and go too far. And when I was able to just allow myself to make the list, and have that just be it, the part of it, n- nothing else, um, it went really well this time. Previously, I, you know, kind of struggled with it, but yeah, I just just make the list. That's all we're doing. Steps 8 and 9 are concerned with personal relations. First, we take a look backward and try to discover where we have been at fault. Next, we make a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we have done. And third, having thus cleaned away the debris of the past, we consider how, with our newfound knowledge of ourselves, we may develop the best possible relations with every human being we know. This is a very large order. It is a task which we may perform with increasing skill but never really finish. Learning how to live in the greatest peace, partnership, and brotherhood with all men and women, of whatever description, is a moving and fascinating adventure. Every AA has found that he can make little headway in this new adventure of living until he first backtracks and really makes an accurate and unsparing survey of the human wreckage he has left in his wake. To a degree, he has already done this when taking moral inventory, but now the time has come when he ought to redouble his efforts to see how many people he has hurt and in what ways. This reopening of emotional wounds, some old, some perhaps forgotten, and some still painfully festering, will at first look like a purposeless and pointless piece of surgery. But if a willing start is made, then the great advantages of doing this will so quickly reveal themselves that the pain will be lessened as one obstacle after another melts away. So the book is kind of, well, the book is really going into the idea that you, you should be kind of doing eight and nine back to back, but you should still be doing them separate. Make the list then work on the next part. These obstacles, however, are very real. The first and one of the most difficult has to be has to do with forgiveness. The moment we ponder a twisted or broken relationship with another person, our emotions go on the defensive. To escape looking at the wrongs we have done another, we resentfully focus on the wrong they ha- he has done with us. This is especially true if he has, in fact, behaved badly at all triumphantly we seize upon his misbehavior as the perfect excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own i you know i have worked with people uh and i have talked with people about you know this kind of thing this this aspect of the program or of any kind of a program and it's it's still amazing to me how often i hear people say that they didn't harm anybody That's just never the case. It Just really isn't. We do harm on accident regularly, and we at times do harm and call it our personality or whatever. When listing the people we had harmed, most of us hit another solid obstacle. We got a pretty severe shock when we realized that we were preparing to make a face-to-face admission of our wrecked conduct to those we had hurt. It had been embarrassing enough when in confidence we had admitted these things to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, but the prospect of actually visiting or even writing the people concerned now overwhelmed us, especially when we remembered in what poor favor we stood with most of them. There were cases too where we had damaged others who were still happily unaware of being hurt. Why, we, were, we cried, shouldn't bygones be bygones? Why do we have to think of these people at all? These were some of the ways in which fear conspired with pride to hinder or are making a list of all the people we had harmed. Some of us, though, tripped over a very different snag. We clung to the, cha- the claim that when drinking, we never hurt anybody but ourselves. Here it is. This is the one. <laughs> Our families didn't suffer because we always paid the bills and seldom drank at home. Our business associates didn't suffer because we were usually on the job. Our reputations hadn't suffered because we were certain few knew of our drinking. Those who did would sometimes assure us that, after all, a lively bender was only a good man's fault. What real harm, therefore, had we done? No more surely than we could easily mend with a few casual apologies. And I, you know, maybe sometimes there is this idea that Th- that may be true in some cases, but I'm gonna be really honest. There's, I don't think there's very many people in this world who have never gone through life causing harm. the The goal of all of this is harm reduction, but in order for us to reduce our harm, we have to see how we have actually been harming people. And just because we feel uh, it, it, I think what is happening is like there's this idea that well, while I was drinking, I didn't harm those people, but this isn't that process. It is an exploration of. The idea that yes our drinking caused us to be in a toxic state that allowed us to harm people but at times we harmed people even when we were sober while in this state a- another thing to really consider is the fact that we had an opportunity to show up work to work 100 percent and we chose to show up 60 percent or 40 sometimes we did half the work we were supposed to do because we were hungover. i'm going to speak mostly of myself I very much had opportunities where I could have worked harder, I could have done more, but I was either hungover or I was too concerned with going out and getting drunk. There were times in relationships where I could have been a better partner, but instead I didn't even attempt it because I wasn't healthy. I didn't do harm, but I wasn't better. I wasn't doing good. There's plenty of opportunities in my past where I could look and I can see that I could have been better, and I just wasn't. Was that a direct connection to me drinking? Was it that I got drunk and I was this way? Not always. Like I said, there were relationships where I was with a person and and six months would go by and I wouldn't drink, but I wasn't healing. I wasn't working on myself. I wasn't doing better for myself. I wasn't actively trying to pursue a better version of myself. And yes, this is recovery from alcohol, but this is so much more than that. So much more than that and that's where this needs to come from this place of what harm have i caused who did i harm when i was like this i can guarantee you that if you weren't there and 100% for your kids and you were harming them in some way maybe they wanted to hang out with you and you didn't because you were you were too sick and maybe maybe you you know didn't follow through on some promises because uh, you wanted to get drunk instead maybe you drove drunk anytime you drove drunk is Is causing a harm. Yeah, you didn't fucking die, but you put a whole bunch of people at risk. Now, this book will explain, and I'll go over again. That doesn't mean that we bring this stuff up necessarily to everybody. There are some people that just don't need to know that we silently cause them harm. Instead, we make a living amends. And that's going to be more covered in, in step nine. But, you know, coming from that place is important. Knowing that... Yes, I caused this harm, but that doesn't—that again, that doesn't mean that I'm a villain, that I'm a bad person. It also doesn't mean that I'm only looking at harm I caused while drunk. This attitude, of course, is the end result of purposeful forgetting. It is an attitude which can only be changed by a deep and honest search of our motives and actions. Though in some cases we cannot make restitution at all, and in some cases. Action ought to be deferred. We should nevertheless make an accurate and really exhaustive survey of our past life as it has been affected other people. In many instances, we shall find that though the harm done others has not been great, the emotional emotional harm we have done ourselves has. Very deep, sometimes quite forgotten. Damaging emotional conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists which have since discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. While the purpose of making restitution to others is paramount, it is equally necessary that we extricate from an examination of our personal relations every bit of information about ourselves and our fundamental difficulties that we can. Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than this one. Calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insight. We can go far beyond those things which were superficially wrong with us to see those flaws, which were basic flaws, which sometimes were responsible for the whole pattern of our lives. Through thoroughness, we have found will pay and pay handsomely. What I think a lot of people don't really know is that at, at times there's going to be so much of your personality that's just going to change from the process of being sober that you realize that you just were not who you were supposed to be. You weren't yourself and in some ways that's causing harm cuz you're putting up a false version of yourself and not like in you know, a in a sense that you know you were lying it's more just like the mask we wear kind of thing but we will start to heal and we will look back and see 6 months from now a year from now 3 years from now whatever how different we actually were even in fresh sobriety but more so how different we actually were back back in the day you know when we were in the middle of this we might next ask ourselves what we mean when we say that we have harmed other people. What kinds of harm do people do another anyway? To define the word, harm, the word harm in a practical way, we might call it the result of instincts and collision, which cause physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual damage to people. If our tempers are consistently bad, we arouse anger in others. If we lie or cheat, we deprive others not only of their worldly goods, but of their emotional security and peace of mind. We really issue them an invitation to become contemptuous and vengeful. If our sex conduct is selfish, we may excite jealousy, misery, and a strong desire to relate in kind. Such gross misbehavior is not by any means a full catalog of the harms we do. Let us think of some of the subtler ones which can sometimes be quite as damaging. Suppose that in our family lives we happen to be miserly, irresponsible, callous, or cold. Suppose that we are irritable, critical, impatient, and humorless. Suppose we lavish attention upon one member of the family and neglect the others. What happens when we try to dominate the whole family, either by a rule of iron or by a constant outpouring of minute directions, just how their lives should be lived from hour to hour? What happens when we wallow in depression, self-pity oozing from every pore, and inflict that upon those about us? Such a roster of harms done others, the kind that make daily living with us as practicing alcoholics difficult and often unbearable, could be extended almost indefinitely. When we take such personality traits as those into shop, office, and society of our fellows, they can do damage almost as extensive as that we have caused at home. Having carefully surveyed this whole area of human relations and having decided exactly what personality traits in us injured and disturbed others, we can now commence to ransack memory for the people to whom we have given offense. To put a finger on the nearby and most deeply damaged ones shouldn't be hard to do. Then, as year by year we walk back through our lives as far as memory will reach, we shall be bound to construct a long list of people who have, to some extent or other, been affected. We should, of course, ponder and weigh each instance carefully. We shall want to hold ourselves, of course, admitting the things we had done, meanwhile, meanwhile forgiving the wrongs done us, real or fancied. We should avoid extreme judgments, both of ourselves and of others involved. We should not exaggerate our defects or theirs. A quiet, ob- uh, objective view will be our steadfast aim. And, and again, I, I've, I've said this, but I'm going to say it again. This is so paramount. This is so important. This is so, it just is necessary. This is just a list right now. And even after it moves towards being something more, where we move towards actually making the amends, we're still trying to be as objective as possible. It literally does us absolutely no good at all in any way to just beat ourselves down with this at all. That's not the purpose of this. If anybody even attempts to try to tell you differently, uh, then just don't talk to that person. Honestly, this is this is 100% geared just towards moving past this stuff in, the, in a healthy way, not living in the shame of it. Whenever our pencil falters, we can fortify and cheer ourselves by remembering what AA experience in this step has meant to others. It is the beginning of the end of isolation from our fellows and from God. All right, tradition eight. Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Uh, this is another I mean, this is just housekeeping stuff. This is just um again, I'm sure stuff that they learned through like trial and error. Uh the main idea being that, you know, this is primarily volunteer work. Um there are some folks that maybe need to be hired on so that they can they can cover financial aspects, be tenured, you know, spend time in in the building. Yeah, things that maybe you know, a contract that uh, some sort of an employment contract would would require accountability. You know that sort of thing. But other than that, like most everybody that's involved in this is volunteer. They're they're not being paid. There's no like recruitment centers or something. There's no like, you know, the general services is not like a big corporation or something. Alcoholics Anonymous will never have a professional class. We have gained some understanding of the ancient words, freely ye have received, freely give. We have discovered that at the point of professionalism, money and spirituality do not mix. Almost no recovery from alcoholism has ever been brought about by the world's best professionals, whether medical or religious. We do not decry professionalism in other fields, but we accept the sober fact that it does not work for us. Every time we have tried to professionalize our 12 step, the result has been exactly the same. Our single purpose has been defeated. I believe that that's absolutely true, 100%. I think if you look at any of the other programs that rely on any kind of financial gain, you know, these fake gurus, these weird people that have like these recovery centers that supposedly can cure you for life, you know, with just like a 12-week course or something like that, you know, they have like this absurd value of how much it all costs and then it's like 80 bucks or 100 bucks or something like that. You know, these people are just, they're just trying to get, they're just trying to get paid. And the way they get away with the shit is that they say you're not doing the program right if you fail. If for some reason you drink or you go back out or you struggle or you have a hard time, it's it's all gaslighting. It's all putting it back on the customer. You know, well, if you'd have done it the way that we told you to do it, then you would have, you would have known success. And yeah, you know what? I hear that in AA as well, 100%. Really, I do. I hear it in other programs as well. But I think the difference is... While it is obnoxious in AA, and sometimes not true, and not an indicator of somebody failing the program of some sort, there's no dollar requirement coming through the door of Alcoholics Anonymous. You could never spend a dollar here, ever, and have a seat, as long as you want. If you fail, you come back. It's fucking simple as that. Pretty, Pretty straightforward. There's no hidden discord. Uh, server that you can't join unless you pay a certain amount. There's no Patreon that you have to sign up for and pay a subscription to. There's no requirement for a dollar value to any of this. That's the difference. Alcoholics simply will not listen to a paid 12-stepper. Almost from the beginning, we have been positive that face-to-face work with the alcoholic who suffers could be based only on the desire to help and be helped. Now, that might have been true back then, but this this is a different world we live in now, and people will absolutely pay for a quick fix for whatever ails them, including alcoholism. When an AA talks for money, whether at a meeting or to a single newcomer, it can have a very, very bad effect on him, too. The money motive compromises him in everything he says and does for his prospect. This has always been so obvious that only a very few AAs has ever worked the 12th step for a fee. Despite this certainty, it is nevertheless true that few subjects have been the cause of more contention within our fellowship than professionalism. Caretakers who swept floors, cooks, who fried hamburgers, secretaries in offices, authors writing books, all these we have seen hotly assailed because they were, as their critics angrily remarked, making money out of AA. Ignoring the fact that these labors were not 12-step jobs at all, the critics attacked as AA professionals these workers of ours who were often doing thankless tasks that no one else could or would do. Even greater furs were uh, provoked when AA members began to run rest homes and farms for alcoholics, when some hired out to corporations as personal men in charge of the alcoholic problem in industry, when some became nurses on alcoholic wards, when others entered the field of alcohol education. In all these instances and more, it was claimed that AA knowledge and experience were being sold for money, hence these people too were professionals. At last, however, a a plain line of cleavage could be seen between professionalism and non-professionalism. When we had agreed that the 12 steps couldn't be sold for money, We had been wise, but when we had declared that our fellowship couldn't hire service workers, nor could any AA member carry our knowledge into other fields, we were taking the counsel of fear, fear which today has been largely dispelled in the light of experience. And yeah, I mean, any place that any place that starts servicing a large group of folks should consider like, you know, general like a maintenance person or a general bookkeeper or somebody whose job it is to just unbiasedly work that task that's not related necessarily to alcoholism, but related to the upkeep of of the facilities. You know, I have seen places try to have that be a service position that is reliant on just volunteerism. And it doesn't always work. It just doesn't. Some of us are fucking lazy, and some of us will just use that job as some form of, you know, whatever, some, some weird ego trip and I'm not saying that's a reason why we should never have these kinds of volunteer positions because I think it's important that we give these you know these opportunities to folks who use that as a way to focus but when it comes to the building facility maintenance like the way that the maintenance of the facility is being run it, it should be considered that we just hire someone to do that if it's possible and not have that person tied to a meeting or have that person tied to a power of position or something like that just allow that person to run the facility they could be in recovery or not. Same with like bookkeepers, they could be in recovery or not. Just somebody that is taking care of that stuff that doesn't have the other motivations uh, in place. Take the case of the club janitor and cook. If a club is going to function, it has to be habitable and hospitable. We tried volunteers who were quickly disenchanted with sweeping floors and brewing coffee seven days a week. They just didn't show up. Even more important, an empty club couldn't answer its phone, but it was an open invitation to a drunk on a binge who possessed a spare key. So, somebody had to look after the place full-time. If we hired an alcoholic, he'd receive only what we'd have to pay a non-alcoholic for the same job. The job was not to do 12-step work. It was to make 12-step work possible. It was a service proposition, pure and simple. Neither could AA itself function without full-time workers at the foundation and intergroup offices. We couldn't employ non-alcoholics as secretaries. We had to have people who knew the AA pitch. But the minute we hired them, the the ultra-conservative and fearful ones shrilled professionalism. At one point, the status of these faithful servants was almost unbearable. They weren't asked to speak at AA meetings because they were making money out of AA. At times, they were actually shunned by fellow members. Even the charitable... uh, charitably disposed described them as necessary evil Committees took full advantage of this attitude to depress their salaries. They could regain some measure of virtue, it was thought, if they worked for AA real cheap. (laughs) These notions persisted for years. Then we saw that if a hard-working secretary answered the phone dozens of times a day, listened to 20 wailing wives, arranged hospitalization, and got sponsorship for 10 newcomers, and was gently diplomatic with the irate drunk who complained about the job she was doing and how she was overpaid, then such a person could surely not be called a professional. AA. She was not professionalizing the 12 steps. She was just making it possible. She was helping to give the man coming in the door the break he ought to have. Volunteer commitment men and assistants could be of great help, but they could be expected to carry this load day in and day out. I give uh, Bill Wilson props for finally, in a rare instance, speaking of people in AA as a different gender. Then, yes, I know at times he does reference women, but he definitely doesn't reference women as just uh, participating in the program as people. It's usually to remind us that, you know, they thought of women as wives and childbearers only. Uh, At the foundation, the same story repeats itself. Eight tons of books and literature per month do not package and channel themselves all over the world. Sacks of letters on every conceivable AA program ranging from a lonely heart Eskimo to the growing pains of... Thousands of groups must be answered by people who know. Right contact uh, with the world outside have to be maintained. AA's lifelines have to be tended. So we write, we hire AA staff members. We pay them well, and they earn what they get. They are professional secretaries, but they certainly are not professional AAs. Perhaps the feel, fear will always lurk in every AA heart that one day our name will be exploited by someone for real cash. Even the suggestion of such a thing never fails to whip up a hurricane. And we have discovered that hurricanes have a way of mauling with equal severity both the just and the unjust. They are always unreasonable. No individuals have been more buffeted by such emotional gusts than those AAs bold enough to accept employment with outside agencies dealing with the alcohol problem. A university wanted to wanted an AA member to educate the public on alcoholism. A corporation wanted a personal man familiar with the subject. A state drunk farm wanted a manager who could really handle inebriates. A city wanted an experienced social worker who understood what alcohol could do to a family. A state alcohol commission wanted a paid researcher. These are only a few of the jobs which AA members as individuals have been asked to fulfill. Now and then, AA members have bought farms or rest homes where badly beat up topers could find needed care. The question was, and sometimes still is, are such activities to be branded as professionalism under AA tradition? I mean, no, of course not. Like... Many of us in recovery find our way working jobs where we can be of the best benefit. And a lot of the times that's in social care and social work of some sort. And sometimes it is working with, um, you know, with uh, the city. A lot of the times it's working with the city or working with the, you know, some sort of a state council board or working with like drunk driving organizations or working with like victims panels or, you know, there's all kinds of sort of work that, you know, yeah, we might as well use what we've learned and experienced. The thing that is separate though, is we do that not representing AA. We do that as a result of having worked a program like AA. We think the answer is no. Members who select such full-time careers do not professionalize AA's 12th step. The road to this conclusion was long and rocky. At first, we couldn't see the real issue involved. In former days, the moment an AA hired after to such enterprises, he was immediately tempted to use the name Alcoholics Anonymous for publicity or money raising purposes. Drunk farms, educational ventures, state legislatures, and commissions advertised the fact that AA members served them. Unthinkingly, AA's so-employed reckless broke anonymity to thump the tub for their pet enterprise. For this reason, some very good causes and all connected with them suffered unjust criticism from AA groups. More often than not, these onslaughts were spearheaded by the cry, Professionalism! That guy's making money out of AA! Yet not a single one of them had been hired to do AA's 12-step work. The violation in these instances was not professionalism at all. It was breaking anonymity. AA's sole purpose was being compromised, and the name of Alcoholics Anonymous was being misused. And I agree with that 100%. I don't think it's a very good idea to go into anything saying, well, I'm a member of AA, and this therefore gives me some sense of credibility. I mean, saying you're a part of a 12-step uh, program can still kind of do that, but it's it's kind of up in the air what that even means. I just simply say I'm in I'm in recovery. And if that allows me to participate in something from a place of a person in recovery, then I still keep it separate. I might say, yes, I'm in AA, but I don't use that to get me in the door. And I don't use that as a, uh, a way of representing myself as a member of AA. It's just a thing I do. Um, I think anonymity is... I've talked a little bit about it. It's really a struggle right now. I think a whole lot of that's just just going to have to change. Social media has completely deconstructed the idea of anonymity as it was based in this literature, you know, fucking 80 years ago, 100 years ago. So I think a lot of this dialogue is going to have to be really considered of what we, you know, what we look at as an- anonymity. I think me going online and saying that I'm a member of AA isn't breaking my anonymity, but a lot of the old timers think that's true, that that exactly that's exactly what's happening. So, reading this and then also trying to dissect the definition of anonymity in AA as it stands today can be a little difficult, but I think it's still important that if you're if anybody's using their status as a member of AA to get things That's that's breaking anonymity. That's breaking these traditions. It is significant now that almost no AA in our fellowship breaks anonymity at the public level, that nearly all these fears have subsided. We see that we have no right or need to discourage AAs who wish to work as individuals in these wider fields. It would be actually antisocial were we to forbid them. We cannot declare AA such a closed corporation that we keep our knowledge and experience top secret. If an AA member acting as a citizen can become a better researcher, educator, personal officer, then why not? Everybody gains and we have lost nothing. True, some of the projects to which AAs have attached themselves have been ill-conceived, but that makes not the slightest difference with the uh, principle involved. This is the exciting welter of events which has finally cast up AA's tradition of non-professionalism. Our 12th step is never to be paid for, but those who labor in service for us are worthy of their hire. You know, I don't know. I honestly, lately I've been getting more out of the the 12 traditions than I have been out of the steps. And I think a lot of that is just knowing where I am kind of with the program right now and seeing that, I, you know, there there is a little bit of a uh, uh, weird dynamic shift on the one hand. You know, AA at its core is a good program. It's a great way to get started in recovery. It's a great, great way to continue to build recovery. If you never did anything else, AA can get you sober and and keep you that way. Um, If you are like me and that's just not how your brain works and you end up like kind of going all over the place, AA is a good foundation to really build off of. That being said, AA exists the way that it does, and it's different than other programs because of its traditions. Its traditions are very unique to this program, and it has been learned over the years. I think some of it could be updated, but, you know, we're not at that point yet. I don't know if we'll ever be fully at that point. Like I said, the the GSA is very slow, slow moving on a lot of this stuff. This is uh, this has been a shorter episode. Um, I think, you know, I think nine is going to be fairly short as well. Uh, but then we get into a little bit of meat, the 10, 11 and twelves, And those those are my favorite. Um, hopefully they're they're yours as well. Um, that's where we take everything we've learned and we just do it on a regular basis so we don't have to do all the other stuff over again. So that's that. Again, you can reach out to me on Facebook at uh, An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can message me directly. Um, Liking the page is great. I'm not very active on there. I do not have a very good tendency of updating that stuff regularly or even at all. Um, It's just not something I'm very geared towards. Uh, You can also send me an email directly at oneatheistnaa at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to interact with me and chat with me, that's fantastic. I'm open to all of that. Um, I keep that pretty secret. If there is something that I think that we've touched on that I want to share that's more specific to saying, hey, I just talked with the person. I won't share your information ever. Uh, but I will make sure that it's in a way that's tasteful and it's not like stealing like our conversation that's private to use in a, in a you know bigger atmosphere like this. Um, if there are certain things that our conversation sparked that I think will go into like the next episode, as far as touching on how to, you know, the step works or how part of the process works, I might touch on that, but, um, I, you're, I I will keep your anonymity is what I'm saying. Um, other than that, uh, this has been uh, a pretty good episode. I've enjoyed this. Kind of thinking, I think lately it's been good for me to to just sort of remember all the stuff, even if I'm not necessarily um, living this 100%. I'm not saying I'm not living it 100%. I guess it's, that's a weird way of saying it. Not um, living a a 100%. And with that, have a great rest of whatever it is you're doing. And uh, thanks for keeping me sober one more day.